All right, if you would, I want you to open a couple of different places in scriptures. We're getting started. We're going to start in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel, so you're going to go back there right after Ruth. If you have a hard copy Bible, I really hope it falls open to Ruth easily. That would make me feel good. Um, so it's the book right after Ruth would be 1 Samuel. Tonight, what I want to do is uh, do a devotion, um, 1 Samuel and Matthew chapter 9, kind of combining those. So that's on one half of your half sheet of paper. If you didn't get one of the little note sheets and that's of any interest to you, there's one there on that back table. But half of that, one side of that has kind of our devotion. And then the other side of that is my chance to tell you about the, my trip to Panama. I skipped my three minutes the other night at the mission share service so that I could have 25 minutes tonight, but also to help kind of bring that whole thing together. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, the Lord multiplied the ice cream the other night. I didn't think we had any ice cream. It turns out everybody had plenty of ice cream, so it worked out great. Uh, and uh, fun to hear everything that's going on with, with missions. So I'm going to share with you some about my, my Panama trip and, and talk to you a little bit about that ministry. But to set the stage, we're going to look at some, uh, some scriptures first. 1 Samuel chapter 18, starting in verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that, he was, on, that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So chapter 18, verse 6 now. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have now but the kingdom? And verse 9, Saul eyed David from that day on. Uh, the New American Standard Version says Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. How we view people comes from so many different backgrounds, so many different circumstances impact that. But the question tonight is, how do we see other people? Um, how envy and pride can impact the way we see the people around us. How sin can impact the way we see the people around us. I don't know about you, uh, but being a little bit more of a quiet personality, and you don't have to be a quiet personality to do this, but you do a lot of people watching, um, and people watching is really its own sport. Uh, <laughs> you get points, you know, for certain observations that you make uh, about people, and you can compete with your spouse about different things you're able to, uh, to pick out. And I'm married to somebody who has, has a true gift of discernment, and so she loves to think that she can figure out the story behind somebody just by, just by watching them and kind of observing them from a distance. And so 
Um, and then you see some things you wish you hadn't seen, and you can never unsee after you've seen them. And that's the one downside of people watching that, that comes with that. Um, but I'm always interested in just kind of scanning a crowd, watching people. I'd rather sit on the side and watch the people and kind of see what's happening in a situation. And so with people watching, though, comes a pretty serious spiritual implication. And so I want you to go to the book of Matthew in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 9. This is a very simple concept. It's something that you could take around the corner and lead in a youth group devotion but the more I think about it, the more it belongs right here as well uh, with us. That, that it's an idea that we need to think about of how do we see people around us? How do we think about the people that God has placed around us? You can be Saul, and you can look at people with suspicion. You can look at people with pride and envy and sinfulness. Or Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. So this is the very end of Matthew chapter 9. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. There in verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion. He felt compassion. Okay, we're not going to do a whole lot of talk back tonight. Just I want to leave plenty of time so I can tell you my mission trip stories. But um, the word compassion there, does it, is it present in every translation? Or do any of the translations do something different? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion, felt compassion. Anything different? I think that's pretty standard language. Okay, so let's, let's do this then. Fill that in with another possible word if Jesus wasn't the divine son of God, completely sinless, living out the kingdom of God that he'd been called to live. So, in other words, if I'm in that situation or you're in that situation, if you're not Jesus Christ, What's another response that he could have had? When he saw the crowds, he felt, sorry, contempt. I think I heard. Indifferent. Apathetic. Disgust. Somebody said something funny or observant over here, so I'm not sure. Overwhelmed, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So disgust, look at those people, overwhelmed. I think I'm going to turn around and go back the other way. Like, this may not be the place for me. Suspicious, go right back to, yeah, to Saul in, in 1 Samuel 18. Felt suspicious, what are these people up to? I don't know about you guys, but there are multiple times in my life that I am very unhappy about the attitude that comes up in my heart or the thought that comes into my mind when I see somebody. Um, it's often not compassion. <laughs> there are other words you could fill in the blank with, and it's just not that. So, Tom, turn around. What are you doing? Man? <laughs> Don't think about Bill at this moment, what you feel about Bill. Just think about it. <laughs> That's awesome. Don't look at anybody else in the room at this moment here. So, uh, don't share with anybody what you think or feel when, you, when they come into your, into your life. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, so the, we, we see people and we think, man, how do we, how do we feel about this? So Jesus here comes, he sees the people, he's been healing, he's been teaching, he sees them, and he had compassion for them. Why? Because he knew they were harassed, he knew they were helpless, he knew they essentially were without hope in that situation. So what does he do as a response to that? Then he said to his disciples in 37, the harvest is plentiful. So he sees the people as a harvest. He, he doesn't see them as a problem to, to be solved or to be avoided. It's like, no, no, we need to go there. Like, that's where we need to be. But the laborers, the people who are willing to go into that situation, that see them as someone who is in need, they are few. Then a little bit surprising, actually, in verse 38. If I don't know this passage, if I'm just kind of reading along, and it's a good practice in Bible study. I know it's impossible to do. It's a good practice in Bible study. As much as you can to kind of read a passage maybe with fresh eyes, or if I didn't know what was coming next, what might surprise me about this passage? All of us read from backgrounds. None of us can get rid of that background. We understand that. But if you think about it, what if I didn't know what came next? So, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few, so get to work. I didn't say that. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into its harvest. One thing you see going on here is a very clear observation early in the ministry of Jesus that the calling that God had given him was so big that it wasn't just going to be him and the disciples to fulfill it. It was always a calling that he was calling other people into. So it's not, hey guys, let's go and solve this on our own. It's we're going to need to have other people involved with us. So pray that the Lord would send out others with us. He assumes, I think at this point, that his disciples are going into the harvest, but he's, he's going to tell them to go. <laughs> he's going to say, you don't have a choice. Go. You're going to go there. But pray that the Lord would send others with us. And so when you see people in a certain way, you, you not only take action, but you pray that others would be involved, that others would be brought along. So we, when you see people in need, when you see somebody in need and you feel compassion in your heart toward that person, that's a good thing. A danger you have to watch out for is a savior complex that says, okay, I saw that person. They need help. I feel that in my heart. I'm going to go solve that person's problems. There's a danger that comes there realizing, wait, 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 I probably can't solve those person's problems. And, and if I could, I could meet a little bit of that. Pray that the Lord would do more, that he would send other people, that you would bring other people along with you. Um, and if anybody struggles with a savior complex, it's people on staff at churches. And so of all people, we have to be particularly careful that you don't just see a need, go meet it and say, oh, look at us, what we did. No, no, pray that the Lord would send other people into the harvest. And so what I love about this is it teaches us what it looks like to people watch, what it looks like to see people the way that God would have us to see them. I put there on your notes, how do we see people? We learn to see people how God sees them. How do we see people? First, seeing people as those created in the image of God. Whether a person is a follower of Jesus or not, that person deserves to be treated with dignity because they are a human being created in the image of God. This addresses so many of the social issues that we face in our world. It, it, it addresses so many of the racial issues we deal with in our world. Um, the idea that, that that person has been created in the image of God, um, therefore they deserve to be treated, they deserve to be viewed in a particular way. And, and we make it out sometimes to be a racial issue. It can just as easily be an economic issue. 
You may have nothing negative in your heart about somebody of another race, but you meet somebody of another social standing or economic standing, all of a sudden these negative thoughts come up. And so we don't want to make it just a racial thing. There are all kinds of things that impact the way that we, that we view people. Um, so one, we see them created in the image of God. Two, we realize that they are fallen, sinful, and in need of salvation. So when you see somebody, you're not seeing a perfect person. Uh, you're seeing someone who needs hope, who needs rescue. So God, help me see how their life is in need of, of your salvation, of your redemption. We view them with compassion, healing, hope. I was trying to pull those words just kind of straight out of that Matthew 9 passage. We view them the way that, that Jesus would see them, someone we need to reach out to and care for. Um, and see them not as who they are, but who they can be in Christ. So when you view someone, remember your life is a work in progress as well, as is theirs. Uh, and you guys know hurt people hurt people. Um, when you're hurt by someone, when you feel contempt or anger toward them, there's a good chance there's a background to that hurt that maybe you just don't know all about. And so, yes, that's who they are right now, but it's not all of who they can be in Christ. And so the people that amaze me the most in the world are the people who are able to see incredible potential in those that really bother other people. So everyone else is driven away from somebody, and somebody steps in and says, oh, yeah, but man, what they can be. These are where teachers just excel, like just are, are amazing. When they there's a kid that maybe drives everybody else crazy, and a teacher's able to look at that kid and say, yeah, yeah, but I see some really good traits there. Like, I see what they could be, what they could become. Coaches, teachers, um, and then just parenting in general. But when we, when we understand the power of the gospel, that's how we should, all, all should be. Um, you know, Tom looks at Bill and says, man, one day Bill is going to be a pretty incredible guy. Like, we just have to keep working with him, and it's really going really to get there, you know? And so you don't see them for who they are. You see them for, for who they can be, who they can become in, in Christ. And, and it gives us a lot of freedom there. So how do you get to that point? Number one, you have to understand how God sees you, understand how God sees us. Uh, this is not like a build yourself up, self-esteem type lesson. It's just the idea that if you have a really low view of how God sees you, you're probably going to turn around and put that on other people. Um, we, we love others um, as Christ has loved us. And so if we don't understand what that feels like, it's going to be hard to turn around and love other people. So I'm, I hope I'm not coming across this little cheesy, like, see yourself as a great person. But if there's not appropriate understanding of your identity as created in the image of God, your identity as being in Christ, it's going to be hard to turn around and give that to somebody, somebody else. Two, you've got to be able to take your eyes off yourself then. So you, you see how, who you are in Christ. Then you say, okay, but my job's not to stare at myself. It's, it's to focus on people around me, to be observant. We have to slow down long enough to look. Uh, when you live in Owen's world and you just go from task to task and you're like, I've got to get here and do this and get here, you can pass by people pretty quickly and, and not see them. I have this one memory, really clear memory from uh, being in New Orleans and we're walk, walking along uh, uh, one of the streets, it was actually a magazine, which is a well-known street that, that runs through New Orleans there and we're walking along and I've got some place to go and Amanda's with me and I look back and Amanda's not with me anymore. It's like, oh, what's... Amanda is back. She stopped to have a conversation and care for this man in a wheelchair um, who's, who's off to the side. 
literally never saw the guy in the wheelchair, which speaks so lowly of me. But I would have had somewhere to go, someplace to get, and here she stopped to care for this guy who, who's in need on the side of Magazine Street. Now, you don't have to go very far in New Orleans to find somebody who's in need, and they have some sort of story on the side. But what always stuck, stuck out to me is, why did she notice him? And, and I didn't, and I kept, I kept going. Like, we have to slow down long enough to see people, to really know their story, to know what kind of needs they have. Um, pace of life will impact the way we view people around us. If we move fast, people are obstructions. They, they get in our way. They slow us down from doing what we're called to do. This is me caring for my, trying to preach to myself. But, you know, somebody's not an obstruction. They're creating the image of God, and we need to slow down and be able to look at them. Um, and then look with integrity, humility, love. So we don't have pride when we look at others, and, and neither do we have pity. Uh, that just comes across all, all wrong. Like it's, no, I, I humbly realize that, that you matter, that you've been created in the image of God, and I want to care for you. And, and then pray for spiritual insight. It's not just the exterior that we're looking at. It's, God, help me to really understand what's going on in, in this person's life. And so uh, the reason I wanted to share this with you um, tonight is because as we were getting ready to go to, to Panama this summer, Amy Hicks, as, as you, many of you know, um, she's taken teams down to Panama for several years now from, from Emmaus, mainly groups of teenagers, and every year that she goes down, she's, well, I don't know if you've done it every year, you've done it for several years now, she'll have different people in the church write daily devotions for the kids to have when they're on the mission trip. And so you get there, and you open up, and Monday, day one, you know, Kenny Mossman's written something, and day two, Amy Hillis. And so you're, you're reading these devotions that church members have written, and she asked me to write one for our team. And as I was praying about what to write, this is what I felt led to write so that those teenagers would know how to act on a mission trip, except I was really, um, oh, it's one of the, God really did this work in my own heart, my own life, in the process of trying to write this, to put it in the devotional, to give it for, for our mission trip to, uh, to Panama. And so I wanted to share that with you um, tonight. Also as a segue, I want to tell you a little bit about the trip to Panama and what I learned. So if you turn it over to the back, this is what Owen learned in Panama um, and, and in the process of being down there. So July 16th, uh, we flew down to David, Panama, uh, Amy's grandma still lives there, and her parents are there taking care of, of her grandma, and they're based there. There's also uh, a man based in that area now, uh, Matt Holfield. Matt was the former pastor at Mayfair Baptist Church in Oklahoma City, and Matt also has been on staff at Northeast Baptist over in, in Norman, but Matt got connected down in that area. And what's happened in this area of Central America, specifically there in, in Panama, is the International Mission Board has primarily largely pulled out of that area because there are churches in the area. They have limited resources. Um, you could argue both sides about whether they should have done that or not, but they're trying to get to areas primarily where there are no churches, no believers. And so you don't have hardly any International Mission Board uh, employees or missionaries in that area anymore. And so Matt is not paid by the International Mission Board, but he works with them when he brings groups. So 
they, the International Mission Board wants to know what he's doing there because those are projects that they can coordinate with and send people in that direction. So that's kind of the way that, that relationship works. And so Matt is bringing in teams all the time to, to work in David and Panama City. They have teams that go to Bogota, uh, Colombia, and, and are also doing some, some work there. So we went into to David there, and the long-term relationship with this area is with a man named Pastor Ricardo. Um, Amy could give you the really cool backstory about how her parents got connected to Pastor Ricardo, but Pastor Ricardo is the, the pastor that just holds everything together, so to speak, in Panama, and especially in the little communities, not, not in Panama, in David, and then in the little communities around David, Pastor Ricardo, Pastor Ricardo is very involved in, in that area. Pastor Ricardo actually came to Emmaus uh, back in 2013 and was here when the torna- one of the tornadoes happened, and so I, I think he's not sure that he's ever coming back. Uh, though he did tell us he wanted to come back, so we're not sure that he wanted, wanted to come back because of the being here during a tornado, but... Pastor Ricardo is in this area, and then they're trying to start churches around there. The first thing that I put down here on the, on the page, um, it's unbelievably exciting to be able to share the gospel with someone and see them trust in Christ, uh, and then remember evangelism, it, oh, I didn't, I didn't write that out well. Evangelism is often a team game, and it is always empowered by God, not you. So... Um, one of the first communities we, we worked in uh, was an area outside of David that they're trying to plant a church in, in this area. And this is several months ago here at Emmaus, but Rafino and Kelsey. Rafino is one of the young men who's come up under Pastor Ricardo's leadership. And he was actually here and shared at Emmaus. This was uh, six, nine months ago, something like that, um, maybe longer than that. But but Rafino is trying to plant a church in this particular community. So we went to the school. We did games at the school. Um, I made the mistake of bringing an American football, and we started to throw the American football around and during recess, and so the kids start to tackle each other and run all over and cause chaos. But it, it seemed like a good idea in my mind when I packed the football. Um, and so it caused all kinds of chaos at the school, but we were able to do ministry there. Then we went out in the afternoon to the community, and we just went door to door. And Rafino has spent a lot of time in this community building relationships. And we went up to a, a house, and a lady came out to, to greet us, and we stood under her tree. And there I was thinking, oh, no, like this is the moment you pray for and prepare for on mission trips. What do you do? So... I just start telling her the story of the prodigal son out of Luke chapter 15. And the translator is translating the story, and she's interested in it. She wants to know what happens in the story, so I tell her about the story. And then we transition to telling her about, uh, about Jesus. turns out she has a Catholic family background. But we said, do you believe, though, that what Jesus did, that when he died and rose again, do you believe that that, that impacts your life? That was where she's like, no, I, it's a, I believe that that happened, that that's okay, but it, it, didn't, it doesn't impact my life. Well, at that point, um, the translator, I think, got tired of translating for me, so he just asked me to step off to the side. Um, he saw the open door, so he begins to speak to her 
quickly um, in Spanish and, and drive right home, but this good news is for you. And you never know the authenticity of somebody's conversion. You don't want to be the judge of their soul or anything like that. You don't go on mission trips to count numbers or converts or anything, but just right there, we prayed with her to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And Rafina went by the next day and followed up with her, and he said, man, I think that that was absolutely legitimate, authentic. Uh, and Maria trusted Christ right there. And so you're like, Lord, thank you for that. Like the, the opportunity to be able to see that happen, um, to see someone hear the gospel, realize it pertains to their life, and then trust and respond to that. And so um, Carl's not here tonight, but many of you guys have gotten to know Carl Dean uh, Carl pastored previously before he and his family have come to spend some time with us at Emmaus, and almost certainly the Lord's going to send Carl to pastor again soon. But um, Carl talked about during a difficult time in, in pastoring the place he was at previously, he went to Ed Sassnett, who's currently the pastor at Northeast Baptist in Norman, and he just laid his heart out to Ed. I'm barely holding on here. This is about to kill me. I don't know that I'm going to make it through. I don't know that I can pastor anymore. And Ed said, hang on. He said, just go share Jesus with somebody. Leave the office. Leave all your problems behind. Just go out and share the gospel with somebody. He's like, that's what you've been called to do. That's where the joy of ministry is found. And when we get caught up in so many things that take our attention, so many things that take up our time, and we forget, just, just go and share good news with somebody. Have a chance to have that conversation. Um, it's life-giving um, in a way that almost nothing else can be. And so I was reminded of that talking to Maria. I didn't even get to finish the presentation. It's not like any of my good words. I mean, I was trying to tell the prodigal son story in English, and the guy just moved me out of the way. That's why I said it's, evangelism's often a team game. I really feel like the Lord used me in that situation. I feel like I said the right thing for the right time. Um, but you guys know when you share with people, it's not always you sharing with them the first time. It's you kind of this is, this is church language, but, you know, we plant the seed, and then somebody else comes along and waters, and then the growth happens. And so um, realize that evangelism is always empowered by God, but it's often a team game. Number two, uh, church planting is about reaching people who are overlooked, unreached, and or far from God. One thing that Pastor Ricardo is trying to do is he wants his church to become a, a hub of new churches in the area, reaching into communities that don't have a church. We come from the land of a church on every corner. Uh, we look, come from the land of a church for every taste and every stripe and every type of person. Remembering that when we talk about church planting, and this is Hans Dilbeck, who's the new director for the state of Oklahoma for, for Oklahoma Baptist. This is something that he does so well. He sees this so clearly. Hans's phrase is, you evangelize before you congregationalize. In other words, like we're not going to go plant a church because we want church people to have another option to attend church. We share the good news, and as people come to Christ, you gather a congregation around that. And seeing the way that Pastor Ricardo is, is doing that in David is really cool to see that. And so if we're going to plant churches, um, and, and just to let you know, the Lord's doing a really neat work in Jim's life right now and putting together some things for, for us to be involved in and to pursue. And we're not going to plant a church just so other church people have a place to attend. Like if we're going to be involved in a church plant, a church start, we want it to be because there's a group of people that don't have access to the gospel, that, that aren't being served with the gospel, or that are being completely overlooked um, with, with ministry um, and, and that idea. And so Pastor Ricardo reminded me of that when, when we were there. 
Number three, it's so easy to slip into being a prideful know-it-all North American, but it's equally true that God never wastes our experiences and uses us to train and encourage others. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the projects we did there was lay the concrete foundation for where this church is going to be, not just a church building, but this is going to be Pastor Ricardo's training hub for these church plants in the area. And so we had a chance to lay this concrete foundation. You wouldn't know it by looking at me, but in high school and college, concrete was my job. Um, there was, oh yeah, I forgot these are being recorded. I was going to tell you a story, but I don't think I wanted to go on the internet. So uh, <laughs> we're going to back away from that story. Um, so I did concrete work in, in high school and college, and we were laying a foundation. We were doing concrete work in Panama. This is great, except the Panamanians don't do construction quite the way that we would always do construction. And man, the first day was burning me up. Like, just drive me. If, if the guy I worked for had seen this concrete work, he would have made us just like bust it up and start over again. He wouldn't even let it stayed. Um, and so in my heart, I was just so frustrated that they weren't doing the job the way I thought they should be doing the job. And I was like, no, Owen, back up. Like, you're not in charge of this project. You're not the one to come and tell them how to do. So the second day I came up with a different strategy, I just didn't ask anybody. And I just jumped in and, and did it myself, which I'm not sure was any better, but I sure felt better about it. And so the concrete driver wouldn't do anything we wanted him to do, um, but, but we made it through that. But it was interesting. All those years of doing concrete work in high school and college thinking, man, why am I doing this as a job? And then you see later in life, you're like, oh, I got to use that skill. Like I had a skill that I developed, didn't know why I was going to have it, and here you get to use it in a situation, uh, which is pretty fun to be able to do something like that. Number four, great pastors, not Owen, but Pastor Ricardo, speaking specifically of him, invest in next generation leaders, um, and these next generation leaders are pressing the envelope to share the gospel. Pastor Ricardo went and developed a group of youth who are now in their early 20s, providing leadership of that church, and after we went to his uh, his church for their youth night and shared there, I look over after it's finished, and he has his next group of youth around him that he's pouring into consistently, discipling them, raising them up to be leaders in the church. Plus, he has this group of kids in their 20s who are doing the same thing alongside him. Um, I was at a meeting the other day about uh, a new church work that's happening in northeast urban Oklahoma City, bad part of Oklahoma City. And they went in there saying, how are we going to develop church leaders? Where are we going to find church leaders? And the wise pastor among them said, they're right there in eighth grade. <laughs> like, that's where your leaders, that's where you're going to find your church leaders. Um, you develop those kids, let them grow up, and they're going to take it and, and run with it. And so that's something when I came back, I thought, you know, what are we, are we giving next generation kids an opportunity to step into leadership? Are we, are we preparing them for that? Are we saying, we want to help you move toward being able to take these, these steps in the church? And Pastor Ricardo's doing that in a really impressive way. Um, and, and already passed, he's already two generations down now on, on this church. One of his kids, Rafino, is not biological kids, but spiritually, is now out starting the church. And more like that's going to happen. Number five, you don't have to travel to Israel to learn how to read the New Testament more clearly. Now, if you get an opportunity to travel to the Holy Land, take it. I mean, just 
fantastic opportunity if you get a chance to do that. Those trips are often sold on the basis of come to Israel, you're going to read the New Testament in a way that you've never read it before because it's going to come alive. Equally true. I mean, it's amazing to see places and then come back and read about them. I will tell you, though, traveling to Panama impacted the way that I see the New Testament and read the New Testament more than traveling to Israel did. And, and here's what I mean. When you read 1 Thessalonians or you read Philippians, or even when you read one of the Gospels, the churches that those were written to were not Emmaus, not 600 people. They were written probably to congregations of 40 or 50, possibly less than that, maybe a little bit more than that, but, but not a lot. And so when we went there, um, being in Panama, you're ministering with and in churches of 30, 40. Uh, we went up to a mountain village and we got up there, and we were doing something with the kids, but there were some adults who started to show up at this little cinder block church that you could fit inside the, uh, the lobby of, of this building. And they start to show up, and they say, Pastor, will you come in and provide some, some training for us, some pastor training for us? So we went in and started to speak to them about their church, and they start to tell you the problems that they're having as a church, and you can go to the verse in the New Testament that speaks directly to that type of problem that, that they're facing um, as a church. And so some of the things we run into in a contemporary church of 600 people, it's just different scenarios. Not that the God's Word doesn't speak to that, because God's Word certainly does. It just makes a whole lot more sense when you're sitting in a church of 20 people and they're asking questions, because those questions just match up so perfectly with what you read in the pages of your New Testament. And so, just on a personal level, being able to be in that church in the mountain village um, and spend time with probably the 10 or 15 adults that were in the building at that time and to hear the questions they were asking us, that was probably the most enlightening moment for me um, in, in the whole time was to, to be in there and, and be part of that. Um, and so, yeah, that, we're going to run out of time. But that, that was a huge thing. Number six, intergenerational church ministry and unity are developed by serving together, um, not sitting together. We, we try to do well at Emmaus of being together across generations, and sometimes we, if we're not careful, we can find that to sitting together in worship, being together in worship. We don't know where the Lord's going to take us in terms of worship gatherings and how those are played out, but here's what I do know. The way you build intergenerational unity is not by sitting in the same building at the same time, it's by doing things together, spending time together, serving together, riding together in a van, working on a project together. That's when that intergenerational ministry and unity really starts to, to happen. Um, to, to see Bill hanging out with teenagers on, on the trip and the bonds that were built there. Uh, Jared Smith, who's my neighbor and another guy that went on the trip, and just the way that the kids loved him. And, and Jared came back and said, and I would love to work with teenagers. And I go, I can point you to Jared, and he'd be love to, love to take you. But, but it was being with the teenagers on that trip that made him think, I love this. This is what I want to do. This is what I want to, where I want to be involved. And so if you can find intergenerational ministry to Jared sits with his family in the top of the worship center and the kids sit down at the front, never going to get there. I mean, you could try to sit in the same building. It's not going to happen. You go out and do something together, and all of a sudden, man, we want to spend time together, and 
They tell an old dude he's cool, and you're like, oh, I never knew I was cool, but this is good. Like, they accept me. They receive me, receive me in. Um, and so it was neat to see, to see that happen. Um, number seven, going on a mission trip, not just going to Panama or Calgary or anything like that, but even local service opportunities and evangelism outreaches, uh, going on a trip like that really does teach you to be more intentional in your so-called normal, everyday life. We live on mission in those ways we talk about um, there's, there's some debates out there, and I'll admit they're legitimate debates about are short-term mission trips a good idea? Um, there are bad forms of short-term mission trips where the missionaries on the field are actually hurt more by the group coming to, to do the trip. So there, there's bad examples of that, and I admit that. And churches ask, is this worth the investment of money? Like, why would we do this? I, I can just tell you, there's something about being involved in, in something like this, a trip like this, or, or being involved in a project that really does make you, it changes the way you see, changes the way you think, it changes the way you live your life. Um, inevitably, you have to ask yourself when you come back, why did I live so intentionally and purposely for six days and then come back and not live with that same intention and purpose and focus? Um, that's probably what it's done for me. Like, I had that conversation with Maria that was so beautiful, so much fun to be a part of. Who says Maria's not right here? She absolutely is. Um, those conversations are there. It's just, in that situation, it's right in front of you. You're thinking about it. You come back here, and you get sucked back into so-called everyday normal life, and we don't think about those things in the same way. So, um, I appreciate being a part of a church that is supportive of these things. I, I think it's, it's good for the vitality and health of the whole church together. You may be in a situation where it's just you can't go on a trip like this, but you can most certainly be a part of what's going on in, in the life of the church and celebrate and participate in those things. So that's just a couple of one of the things I wanted to, to share with you. You could take the stories from Canada. You could take them from different places and put them together. But um, And the, the thing I like about that is you could take those points and you could dig behind them and find things that God's doing right here, whether it's church planting, whether it's evangelism, whether it's younger leadership coming up, intergenerational ministry together. All those things are so cool because they're happening right, right in front of us, right in the middle of what we're doing. So, All right, we're out of time. Let me pray for us, and, and we'll wrap up. Father, thank you again for, for the time to be together. God, I pray that you would use that concept from from Matthew chapter 9, uh, to, to help us think about how we see people around us. We're going to leave this place and see people as we go home. Uh, we're going to go back to work and school tomorrow and, and see people in different situations. God, let, them, let us see them with compassion as those um, who are in need of, of hope and salvation. Uh, God, help us to look, with, look at people with humility and love. Um, and God, I pray that as a church that that would be true of us on a, on a corporate level. God, thanks for what you teach us as we go out and are involved in mission opportunities and service opportunities. Uh, God, I pray that you would continue to draw us together as a church in these ways. Um, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, remember uh, Sunday school this Sunday looks a little bit different. Guys will be in here at 915 for the men's conference, that first session. And ladies are actually going to be in the fellowship hall to make it easier to, to get to. So 9.15, guys are in here, ladies are in the fellowship hall. That's it. Thanks.